I mean, it really is a thrill to be back with you. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 2. If you're making notes this morning, I've called this message Christ Alone. We're presently in a series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's a wonderful letter where we're looking at the supremacy of Christ, and it's a letter that continues to take us to fresh and breathtaking vistas of Jesus, who is our life. And so we're going to read together. There's a bit of feedback on the stage, just so you know. I'm getting an echo of myself all the time. And we're going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and we're going to read actually from verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us. With its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing Over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its zeal. I thank you for the way that it builds truth into our hearts. And Lord, as we slow on this text this morning, Lord, would it bring wonderful and life-lasting truth to our hearts? Would you set us free? Free in you. Lord, help me by your grace. Amen. You know, just recently I was sitting at my kitchen table with music playing in the background, which my wife puts on regularly, filling out home with Christian music. And a song came on which immediately began to speak to me. It immediately began to blow me away as I heard the words. And it's the words of the song, Who You Say I Am, by Hillsong. Listen to this. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me. I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died 
for me. Who the Son sets free. Oh, is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Isn't that wonderful? What wonderful words. As I heard that song, as I sat at my kitchen table, I was simply blown away by these words because these words recognize our identity in Christ. They sum up what Paul has been talking to us about in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. Namely, that Christ is not only supreme of all, he is supreme in our lives. Jesus has paid it all for us. Listen, the the whole point of these texts is to help us see that we were lost. Colossians 1 verse 21. You and I, we were lost. We were once alienated from God. We were once hostile in mind. We were once doing evil deeds. That was our story. That's who we all were in the natural. And yet God in his grace, he brought us in. He came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He died in our place and through his life and death and resurrection, he set us free. He redeemed us to himself through his own precious blood. He reconciled us to the Father. And he reconciled us to the Father, not just as an acquaintance, but actually as a child of God by adopting us into his very family. And even now the Bible says he is busy preparing a place for us in his Father's house. Heaven will be our home. And to ensure that is a reality, he has completely and utterly forgiven you. He's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. As verse 13 says, He has forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us. My friends, is this not good news? You look like you are dying of COVID right now. Is this not good news? It's amazing. This is the reality of who we are in Christ. This is our identity in Christ. But the reality is how quickly we forget this. We move on. We forget that we are forgiven and adopted and that heaven is our home just in Christ. We move on all too quickly from that reality. And when we move on, when we forget, it is the perils and dangers of legalism that then wait right at our doors. And that, is what is waiting right at the door of this Colossian church right here in this text. Namely, a tendency and a temptation to legalism. The Gnostics have come in, these false teachers, and they are teaching that Christ, he's a great place to start. Well done. This is great. He's a good first step. But he's not enough. There's different things you now need to do. There's different practices you need to start operating in. There's different prayers you need to make, different passwords you need to know. And that's how you're going to work your way up to really being accepted by God. Christ alone isn't enough. You need other things. They are being tempted towards legalism. And my friends, what I want to encourage you in this morning is that temptation and tendency towards legalism isn't just there in their hearts. It is in the heart of every Christian that is still living and breathing. In every Christian, there is a legalist within. In every Christian, there is a tendency and temptation towards 
legalism. No one is immune from legalism. No one outmatures legalism. There is a tendency and temptation in all our hearts. And so this text is oh so important for each and every one of us in the room. Three points then this morning. Number one, legalism defined. Number two, legalism discerned. And then number three, legalism displaced. Number one, legalism defined. I don't want to assume that everyone present understands exactly what legalism is. And so what is it? Well, here's the best definition that I could come up with. Um, You know, I am at best a walking quote, okay, every time I talk. I've got it from somewhere, most likely. But this is just a combination of many things I've heard over different years. Legalism, if you want to understand it, in a nutshell, it's this. Legalism is seeking to smuggle in our works to a salvation that is all of grace. It is to seeking to smuggle in our works to a salvation that is all of grace. Legalism, then, in headline, is self-atonement. It is looking at the cross and looking at Christ and saying, listen, I'm really grateful. It's incredible all that you've done for me. But it's not quite enough. I now need to behave a certain way and do certain things to really make myself acceptable to God. I'm grateful for the cross, but in reality, I don't really think it was enough. Legalism is seeking to smuggle in our works to a salvation that is all of grace. C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, says it this way. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God, listen, through our obedience to God. Namely, I'm grateful for the cross, but now my justification and your acceptance of me is totally based on my obedience and my faithfulness and what I do. Legalism is seeking to smuggle in our works to salvation that is all of grace. And quite clearly, it is this type of legalism that is standing right at the door of this small church in Colossae. And these false teachers are coming in and trying to deceive them into thinking Christ was a good place to start, but now it's about your works, your obedience, your faithfulness to ultimately get you to be accepted by God. And what Paul wants to help them see is that is absolutely not true. Christ alone is enough. It is not Christ plus anything. It's just Christ. And so in verses 16 and 17, he warns them as you go through the text, he warns them against diets and days. Now, for all of those who like dieting, I'm not saying don't diet, but I'm trying to help you see in just a few moments that Mac is, is good for your soul if you want it to be. Verse 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new, of a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, when it comes to diet, these Gnostics had come into this church, come into this small church, and they were basically preaching and teaching that, listen, these Old Testament laws on what you can eat and what you can't eat, they're still really important. 
If you want to be accepted by God, if you want to observe spiritual fullness, if you want to really get your way to heaven, then dietary laws are important. What it talks about in Leviticus is still important, and you need to get back to that. And when it comes to days, they're also really important. It would appear that the same is true for feasts and days to what they're saying about diets as well. You see, the Jews in the natural, they had many special days. They had many special feast days. You read about them in Leviticus chapter 25. They had new moon celebrations. You read about them in Isaiah 1. And then they had very strict Sabbaths that you read about in Exodus chapter 20. And the Gnostics were basically coming and saying, listen, you guys need to get back to all that. Jesus is great, but you need to get back to this stuff because this stuff is all about what it means to be acceptable before God. And so Paul writes to them right here, and what he's saying is this. No! That's not true. That is not true at all. For it's not about diets and days. As he says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. All these diets and all these days were ultimately designed by God to point you to Jesus. And he has come. So these diets that they were taught that they must observe, they were designed by God in the Old Testament to sensitize his people to God's holiness and God's purity and God's majesty. And these days of the Old Testament, they were designed by God to teach his people about various aspects of God's works and his character and his goodness. But they were only ever designed by God to be shadows and types, to point everybody to the need of a saviour. Guess what? He's come. His name is Jesus. The only way to be accepted by God is through Jesus. He's the only way. It's not about diets. It's not about days. It's all about Jesus. That's why he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. His premise is, listen, it doesn't matter what you want to do. You want to go to Maccas? You go to Maccas. You want to be super healthy? You be super healthy. Don't no one be thinking that this is going to make me more spiritual before the Lord. This is going to make me more acceptable before the Lord. It's got nothing to do with what you eat. It's got nothing to do with days. It is all about Jesus Christ. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can be accepted before the Lord. These Gnostics were trying to pull this church back into legalism, back into rules. And so Paul makes it very clear, listen, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not really accepted before God because you ain't into these diets in these days. No, it's Christ alone that makes you acceptable. In verses then 18 and 19, Paul warns them against deceptive mysticism. A deceptive mysticism that the Gnostics seem to specialize in. This is what he says in verse 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. See, this one's really curious to me because as you study it and you examine it, you realize the Gnostics were most likely pretty humble people. See, sometimes I think we can think that false prophets, that people that are coming in and preaching heresy, 
all wear suits, they have a little crazy smile and they wear a banner over their head saying heretic. They don't. They're just pretty normal people, probably pretty gentle people, probably pretty humble people. And when you examine what the Gnostics are doing, their line of thinking, it does appeal to the flesh. I mean, here's what they would probably be saying. They're probably saying, hey guys, you know, let's be honest. Who are we to go directly to God? Given our lives, given our sins, who are we to really approach God? It's not going to be possible. How arrogant would that be to go to him? And so what we must do, we must humbly go to one of his angels. We must talk to somebody who knows God. And if we do that in the right tone and the right way, then that angel will pass it on to another angel and it will just go up through the hierarchy and God will listen to you. And as we do that, maybe we'll get somewhere. We can't approach God. That sounds a bit different, just a heresy, doesn't it? Angry heresy. But that's what they're saying. And what Paul is saying is, listen, they may sound so humble, but they are also so wrong. (laughs) What they're saying isn't true. You don't pray to an angel. You pray to Jesus. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It is only Christ that gives us access into heaven. Not an angel or not Mary. It's just we go straight to Christ. For these people, he makes it clear in verse 19, these people aren't holding fast to the head. Who is the head? Christ. These people don't know Christ. They're not holding fast to Christ. They might be humble and gentle, but they are foolish and wrong. Don't listen to them. It's not about going to angels or Mary or anybody else it be. It's about going into Christ, the one to whom alone says, come to me and I will give you rest. The one who alone says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The one who alone makes it clear as we put our faith in him, access to the heavenly realms is open to us. It's subtle, but it is a call to legalism from these Gnostics. The whole emphasis is Jesus isn't enough. And then in verse 20 and 23, he starts to warn us against asceticism. Let's read this together, verse 20 and 23 to 23. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referencing to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, asceticism, in case we don't understand what asceticism really is, asceticism is simply extreme self-discipline and avoidance of things for the purpose of religiosity. It's doing something in a very severe way or really not doing something in a very severe way, thinking by me doing that or not doing that, I will get closer to God. So if I stand on a pole for 40 days and 40 nights in cold wind, not eating or drinking, I guess God will just go, wow, this is amazing. Welcome home. As if because of my behavior... I've somehow added to the cross. The cross wasn't enough. It's cross plus me standing on a pole for 40 days and 40 nights to prove to God how much I love him. And because I do it in such a proving way, he goes, wowie, oh, come here. You know, it's just ridiculous. 
But that's what asceticism is. And sadly, history is replete with example after example after example of this type of asceticism taking place. People who will passionately reject comfort and health and marriage and sexual intimacy and food and drink and creation and relationships, sometimes even themselves, all under the banner that if I don't do these things, God will be impressed with me. And then I'll get closer to God. That's what asceticism is all about. And once again, Paul writes this because he wants them to understand, no, this is not true. They're telling you, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is what I tell you. Do not listen to them. It is not true. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is what makes you acceptable to God. It doesn't increase your acceptability or decrease your acceptability. Faith in Jesus Christ, it is a once act, done deal, finished. So this idea of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, listen, do not listen to it because Christ has done enough for you and Christ alone is what makes you acceptable before God the Father. Not your asceticism, not your mysticism, not your diets and your days. My friends, legalism is seeking to smuggle in our works to a salvation that is all of grace. And the Colossian church is being lambasted with this type of teaching daily, it would seem, at this point. So Paul makes it clear and writes to them, don't listen to it. He details for them where they need to deliberately not listen to it. But my friends, they are not the only people that are in need of a lesson on removing legalism from our lives. We all do too. Legalism is a daily temptation and tendency. No one is immune from it. No one will ever out-mature it. And so that's what brings me to my second point, legalism discerned. See, knowing that it is a challenge in our lives, which I trust I'll be able to help you see soon, How then do we discern legalism in our lives? How do we discern it? And if we do discern it, then how do we discern our temptation towards it? And how do we discern that if in reality, that temptation in reality has actually already given into practice? How do you find if actually I'm already operating as a legalist in my life? How do you discern this so that it can be displaced? Well, the only way to discern it is to actually see it. And in the same way, then, Paul has sought to care for this church in this moment by bringing things to life for them and helping them see it. It's my desire to try and bring it to life and help you see it this morning, not in their life, but actually in our lives. What does legalism actually look like 2,000 years on in Sydney? It's all based on the Bible, but let me give you three things that are trying, designed by by me to help bring this to life so we can see it in our own lives. Many of which, in reality, I've actually lived, which is how I know. So how do you discern legalism? How do you just see it? Well, number one, legalism looks like living on the end of good day, bad day scenarios before God. Legalism looks like living on the end of good day, bad day scenarios towards God. This one is a 
it's been a, it was a, a fiend to me for so long, I think, in reality. I understand this one well because this is the one that more than anything I lived for a number of years in my life. Here's the way it works. You're grateful for the cross. You really are. But when you have a good day before the Lord, when you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're evangelizing, telling people about Jesus, you're sitting at the front of the church. You're like, yes! Because you actually think he must be pretty cool with you. He must be smiling on your life and probably he's probably sitting on his throne thinking, oh, I'm so pleased I chose that one. He is so special to me, so special. Look at what he's doing. And so when you're having a good day, you're cool. The problem comes when you have a bad day. And you're not reading your Bible. You're not praying. You realize you shouldn't have spoken to your kid like that, but you did. And what you actually discern in your heart is, God must be so disappointed with me. He must be tolerating me. And so you're not singing at the front of the church, you're kind of at the back, you're kind of in, but you feel like the natural black sheep of the family, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm in, but, you know. And so you're working hard to get back over here, to start to impress God again, as if God's like, as if it's a voice and you're waiting for his chair to turn around, you know. You're trying to do all you can, I'll sing louder, is he going to turn? Is he gonna... You start to live with this good day, bad day scenario going on. You know what that is? Legalism. It's basing my relationship with God, my value with God, my perceived acceptance from God on my behavior, not on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but on my behavior. You see, in all reality, a wonderful picture of a legalistic Christian, I think, is the circus plate spinner. It's an analogy I've used on a number of occasions, but I cannot improve upon it. And it is the way I lived my life. You see, once a year in Spalding, where I grew up, uh, the circus would come to town. Everybody would go, you know, all 50 of us in the town, um, because there wasn't anything else to do. And the be- one of the highlights of the circus was the plate spinner. So he'd put all these bamboo poles in a big long line, and then he'd start spinning the plates on the poles, and you'd be like, ooh. And then by the end, you know, he's over here and they start to wobble over here and they're going to fall off. And so you're, you're a kid, you know, it's going to fall, it's going to fall. Actually, I was actually 28 at the time. But, you know, you're shouting, you're trying to help them see it's going to fall, it's going to be a disaster. And then they've got a whole room, it would seem, filled with spinning plates. You know, the legalistic Christian, I think, lives like that. In this regard, you become a Christian and you haven't even heard of plates. You become a Christian and you are just ecstatic about what it means to be a Christian. You cannot believe it. You know nothing about Christianity. You don't even own a Bible. You, you probably prayed like briefly in your life before. You don't really like church, but hey, you'll give it a go. But you're just amazed that I've put my faith in Jesus Christ and he's forgiven me and he's adopted and heaven is my home. Ah, this is amazing. And then somebody tells you because they want to disciple you, which is good. You know, if now you're a Christian, you should start reading your Bible. So wait, I should start reading my Bible. So they buy you a Bible, thank you. And on goes the first plate, and you start spinning it, and you're proud of this plate, because this is a plate for Jesus. And then you're a week on, and they say to you, listen, it's great that you're reading your Bible. Are you meditating on the Bible? Meditating? No, I've never heard of that. So what's that? And they explain to you what it is. You're like, sweet. So on goes another plate and you start spinning the plate. You're like, okay, this is fine. And then somebody says to you, well, listen, it's not just about reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible. It's about memorizing it. Okay, 
I just start doing that. So then goes another place. He's like spinning it. And he, you know, you start to get different things spanning the air. And then over time, a whole list of things come out that it's good to pray. And it's good to pray prayers of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. And it's good to go to church. It's good to serve at church. It's good to go to group. It's good to give. Very important to give. It's good to serve. We need to serve for the glory of the Lord. We need to evangelize and tell our friends about Jesus. And we need to read good godly books about Christianity because we need to be able to disciple people, which we should do on a regular day. So uh, there's all these plates going in, and all these plates are good plates, right? It's what pastors talk to you about all the time. They are good plates. But here's what you notice. This Christian, who was just a few months earlier, passionately singing his heart out because he's so amazed that God had saved him, is not feeling that anymore. And instead, what they're feeling is, I, I just think I let God down all the time. I think he's probably disappointed in me. Because actually, Dave, um, there's quite a few plates smashing to the ground regularly in my life. I didn't read my Bible too well. And yeah, I spoke to my kids in a way that wasn't helpful. And I don't even want to talk about my marriage right now. I don't think I did very well there. And oh, small group, I'm not sure. And so what you hear in their life is plates falling to the ground. But with each plate falling to the ground, what you also hear is the sound of condemnation. And you wonder how this happened. How did we get here? Here's how we got here. That individual has not understood that all these plates are ways of experiencing the grace of God. They don't realize that. They think all these plates are ways of earning the grace of God. And there is a massive difference. If there are ways of experiencing the grace of God, then they can fall and it's okay. But if there are ways of earning the grace of God, then my salvation is dependent on how well I spend these things. So if I spend them really well, God is impressed with me. And if I don't spend them very well and they crash to the ground, he won't be impressed with me, he won't accept me, and he'll just tolerate me. Do you see? This is the way legalism works. Instead of holding fast to Christ, we like Christ and spin our plates as frantically as we can, thinking he will accept me if I can just spin all the plates. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. When it comes to your salvation and when it comes to earning God's grace, you can just go ahead and let each of those plates drop. And what you will still discover is he will be there saying, and you know what? I accept you, and I love you, and I'm singing over you, and you will always be my child. Because that reality was never based on the plates. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. My friends, Jesus Christ alone is who we hold on to. It is not the cross plus anything. How arrogant we think we are. How arrogant I was as I practiced that to think, I am so grateful for the cross. I'm so grateful for all he went through. But I'm concerned that because I didn't memorize a certain scripture, God might be disappointed with me. What? Was the cross not enough? The cross alone is enough, my friends. 
Jesus has paid it all. Legalism looks like living on the end of good day, bad day scenarios. And when it comes then to earning God's grace, I want you to understand as a church, you can go ahead and let each of those plates fall and you will still be accepted by God because your acceptance was never based on the plates. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. All these plates are wonderful means of experiencing his grace. We should do them, but never do them thinking, this is how I will impress him. No, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ that oppresses him. And it's all you need. For some, legalism looks like living on the end of good day, bad day scenarios. For others, number two, legalism looks like living more aware of and affected by past sins then you are the finished work of Jesus. It looks like living more aware of and affected by past sins, then you are the finished work of Jesus. You see, it is not uncommon to meet Christians that are totally thrilled that Jesus Christ has forgiven them of their sin, particularly when they think of their sins prior to Christianity. They are ecstatic that Jesus Christ has forgiven them of what they used to do. But what is also not uncommon is to meet Christians that struggle to find that same zeal and peace with regards to sin forgiven since conversion. And so since they became a Christian, they've committed sins. And instead of being able to move off that, even though they've run to the Lord many times, even though they've asked for the Lord's forgiveness many times, they are still in reality overwhelmingly aware of their sin and this season of sin in their lives to the point where in reality they're more aware of and affected by that sin than they are the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, it is subtle, but that too is legalism. Because that too is saying, therefore, the cross was not enough. It's the cross now plus your penance, plus what you're going to bring to the party. When in reality, the cross alone is enough. You know, most often we talk about this as condemnation. And it is condemnation. But condemnation ultimately is only ever a fruit of legalism. It is a fruit of unawareness that Christ has done it all. And instead of aware of that, we instead think, I've got to smuggle in my works to try to appease God now, to do something. It's like a deal. So, you know, I became a Christian and then I really blew it. But it's okay, God, I will serve you all the days of my life. But then we struggle to serve him all the days of our life. So we feel like he's tolerating it. It's legalism. Rebecca Pippard, in her wonderful book, Hope Has Its Reasons, describes of meeting a lady who was riddled with this type of condemnation and this type of legalism. It's a very moving story. She reads as follows. Several years ago, after I'd finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately, and it was clear from looking at her that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been youth workers in a large conservative church. 
They're a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. And yet a few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered that she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing, but living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal. We felt they wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision we ever made. And I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me to be a bride beaming in innocence. But all that was going on through my mind as I walked down the aisle, all I could think to mind myself was, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. At this point, she was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew that if it was not from God, then it could be very destructive. So I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her, and she continued then. I just can't believe that I would do something so horrible. How could I murder an innocent life? How is it possible that I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know the Bible says that God forgives all my sins, and I've confessed this sin a thousand times. Yet I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me most is how could I murder an innocent life? At that point, I took a breath and I said what I'd been thinking all along. Young lady, I don't know why you are so surprised that you did this. Because this isn't the first time your sin has led to the death of an innocent. It's actually the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued... When you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers, religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters. For all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent that ever lived. Jesus died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to abort your child Is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago, for we all sent him there. Just as Luther has said, we all carry his very nails in our pockets. Yet through him, through Jesus, we are completely forgiven. I will never forget what happened next. The look in her eyes as she paused, sat back in a chair for a few moments, and then said, talk about amazing grace but this time she wept not out of guilt but out of relief and gratitude and in that moment I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross how wonderful in that moment 
Her life was transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. A proper understanding that grotesque and evil though your sin is, Jesus has paid it all. That's why the cross was so grotesque. Because Jesus was taking the penalty of that evil sin in full on his own life. Your sin, past, present, and future has been dealt with by Jesus Christ Himself. You have been forgiven of all your trespasses. Your sins have been cancelled. The record of debt has been cancelled. My friends, I want to encourage you, if you are here this morning and you are still tempted to a constant awareness of past sin, you're aware of some sin or some area of sin in your life, maybe even current, that you've asked for God for forgiveness for again and again, but you're just still living with it daily. I want to encourage you. Jesus has paid it all for that sin you are thinking about right now. It is done. It has been dealt with. If this sounds to you like a scandal, welcome to the gospel. It is a scandal. It is scandalous grace that he can take all of my sin and pay for it in full at the cross. Yes, that is exactly what he's done. So we don't need to live daily as if I'm offering God some penance for my sin. I'm just doing something that he might like to make him smile. Listen, he is smiling over you. He is singing over you because he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he takes all your sin, past, present, and future, and says, hey, listen, I've got that. And I cancel its debt in your life. And when he said, it is finished, one of the things he's referring to is the consequence of your sin. It's done. So my friends, if you struggle, if you find yourselves overwhelmed with some area of past sin, I want to encourage you. Jesus has paid it all. It's done. It's dealt with. It's the scandal of the gospel. So you don't need to try and smuggle in works to try and appease him. He has been totally appeased by the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. Legalism comes in many shapes and sizes. Here's the final thing I want to draw your attention to when it comes to what legalism looks like. Number three, legalism looks like living in fear that just maybe you might not make it. That just maybe heaven won't be your home. And you live in low-grade fear of that reality. See, when you encounter somebody like this, it is, it's actually quite grieving. Because that individual, they hear about heaven and it sounds amazing to them. They love Jesus and they want to be with Jesus. Just the reality is, instead of having heard a message on heaven, an articulation on heaven, instead of feeling assurance that that's going to be where I go, what they actually experience is fear. As they wonder if they're going to make it. Will it be my home? And so they put their faith in Jesus. They, they love Jesus. They, they want to be with him. But there's not assurance that they will be. There's fear as they wonder, but have I done enough? Have I done enough for heaven to be my home? Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior,
then make it you will. Because your acceptance into heaven was never about you doing enough. It is about what Jesus has done in your place. It's not about your behavior. It's about His glorious obedience. It's not about what you bring to the party. It's about what He did 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Your acceptance into heaven is not based on you. It is based on Jesus Christ. It is based on His work and it is gloriously then based on His hold on your life. That's why we read in John chapter 6, Jesus Himself said, And all that the Father give to me, I will lose none. Satan then lies to us and he tries to insert our name into that. Well, he doesn't lose many, but he probably will lose you. No, I will lose none. Jesus Christ died in our place and when we put our faith in him, he holds us and he will never, ever let us go. That's why the Apostle Paul to the Philippians in chapter 1 verse 6 says, and I am sure of this, I'm sure of it, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. He who started the great salvation in you, he will carry it on. He will never let you go. He will never forsake you or leave you. He will carry it on to the day when Jesus Christ returns. Isn't it wonderful? So my friends, if you think that you're getting into heaven based on your behavior because of the plates, well, you can just go ahead and let them drop. Because your acceptance into heaven was never based on the plates. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. It's the scandal of the gospel. Legalism says, no, you need to do more. The gospel says, Jesus has done it all. It's wonderful. Legalism is seeking to smuggle in our works to a salvation that is all of grace. Legalism in so many ways is the height of arrogance as we look to God and say, well, I'm grateful for the cross, but I don't think it was enough. And the fruits of legalism are equally as hideous. Instead of the Christian experiencing assurance, they actually experience fear, wondering if heaven will be their home. Instead of the Christian experiencing joy, what they actually experience is uncertainty as to how Christ really feels about them. Instead of the Christian experiencing amazement of all that he's done, what they actually experience is anguish because they constantly feel like they don't cut it. And that therefore God must be tolerating them. No wonder Paul is so adamantly helping them see, do not do this. So how do you get rid of it? Well, that's point three, just to be closing briefly by way of conclusion. Legalism displaced. How do we displace legalism in our lives? Well, simply, my friends, we need to apply the nail that Paul has been hammering on all the way through Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. What we need to do in terms of displacing legalism is simply this. We need to hold fast to Christ and never move on. We need to hold fast to the person and work of Jesus Christ and never, ever move on from him. The Gnostics were claiming, listen, Colossae, you need to move on. Jesus is a great place to start. But there's more things now, more diets and days. There's things you've got to get going in your life. You need to start praying to angels because all these things are going to add up and make you acceptable to God. Where Paul's nail again and again is never move on. Jesus has paid it all. Never move on. 
Jesus isn't just the start of your salvation. He's the beginning and the middle and the end. Jesus has done it all. Cling to Christ again and again and again. Never move on when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. Upward, you must look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. Never move on. The Gnostics were telling him to move on. Paul's expression was never move on. And my friends, as I seek to serve you, I want to encourage you, never move on. Christ has done it all. Nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross you cling. So you can go ahead and take all your good works and all your bad, and you can throw them in a heap before the Lord. And in Christ, you will always find a sweet, sweet peace. Let's pray. Lord, what we have just examined is amazing grace. It is staggering, amazing grace. The reality that there isn't anything in our hands we bring. It is simply to the cross we cling. It's just you, Lord. You're the one that's done all we need. And so, Lord, for all those that may have identified legalism in their hearts this morning, although, did you help them to put those plates on the floor again when it comes to them thinking that these things make them acceptable before you? Lord, did you burn into their hearts that as all these plates crash to the ground, there is still the sound of your singing Because our acceptance before you, our forgiveness before you, your singing over us was never dependent upon the plates. It was just a plate, just dependent upon your son. (laughs) So Lord, may we all find a sweet, sweet peace in you. Because you really have done it all. In Jesus' name, amen.